Let's take our Bibles and we'll turn to Revelation 10 then. There are uh, manuscripts in the back, if that can be of help to you. I appreciated the fact that my former pastor, when I was in school, manuscripted all of his sermons. And that allowed me, if I missed the point, to go back and to see the point he made. Because uh, when I was in school, I was juggling two kids. So, and they were babies at that time. Now they're sitting in the front row. But sometimes you miss stuff. And I just appreciated the fact, the fact that my former pastor made his work available. And I, I do want you to have it. And I do want you to be able to see it. And if, if you want to, you can always go back to it. You can always call me up for a copy of it. I often find myself going back to these studies because we move so quickly through God's Word, it seems, at times. And sometimes it takes a little bit more reflecting to really allow the Word of God to have it, the impact it needs to have on our hearts. And um, I hope this has been a very, very good study for us all. I say that coming off one of, one of the most horrific chapters in Scripture. We just came from Revelation 9. And if things on earth had been bad with the sealed judgments, things were absolutely terrible in Revelation 9. I think of the times that I had read through the book of Revelation, and I can't help but remember each time just being struck with the effect that the locust-like demonic horde will have upon those upon the earth. They will be tormented for five months. They will seek death but not be able to find it. That has to be one of the most horrific images imaginable. And that, that was to show us that sin deserves torment. It deserves death. And we came to the end of the passage really hoping that we would find men to be repentant. But we found that those on earth would not repent of their idolatry or of their immorality. And what that actually ought to call us to is not simply a reason for us to condemn those around us who don't know the Lord. But that ought to have jogged our mind to what we read in the, in the letters of this book in chapters 2 and 3. And show us how the church still struggles with sin. Sins of idolatry and morality and others that are mentioned. And God calls us to repent of those sins. And repentance is that mark that I believe we need to treasure more and more in our day. Because it seems to be something that is, is unknown and isn't thought of much at the church, in the church. So we pray that. God will use it in our hearts. Today we turn to what I would call a far more pleasant passage in Revelation chapter 10. And with this, we will definitely find encouragement of what the Lord plans one day, and we'll be challenged as well. So my dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, let's commence the study of Revelation 10 and consider earth's eviction notice. Let's all pray. Father, as we... Look into your word again. 
We pray it would be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We are in some ways excited to learn about the future. As we learn about it, it is difficult to read. But as we go through this, we, we pray that you will grant us the grace that you promise us even at the beginning of this book and the blessing you promise those who read it and heed it. We pray that through this study we would give ourselves to the reading of this book and to the applying of what it says, the truths that are in it. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Rental properties can either be very rewarding or very wearisome. It would be nice to think that if someone signs on the dotted line that he will pay his rent. But too often it's the case that someone doesn't pay his landlord and at some point the landlord has to put his foot down. And that can be a sticky business. Because at some point the landlord has to send an eviction notice letting the renter who won't pay his rent know that he needs to pay up or move out. On a far more profound level, those created in God's image for God's glory have been preoccupied elsewhere. People on earth have denied what they know to be true about God, and they've delighted in other things. They've served created things instead of the creator of all things. That's what Romans 1 tells us. It's a deplorable situation that man finds himself in. But this arrangement is not going to last. We learn in Psalm 24 that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all they who dwell therein. All creation is God. All people are God's and enjoy God's blessings every day. But God has determined that one day those not interested in Him will be evicted from the earth. This eviction will be accomplished by Christ. That's what we learn in the book of Revelation. So far in the book, we've seen that Christ expects Christ-likeness in the church. That's where he rules and reigns now. One day, he will initiate conflict with the world. And he is the only one who is worthy of that task, and he will indeed commence it when the time comes, chapters 4 and 5. And he will exert his wrath upon the earth and those who dwell there, chapters 6 through 9. And his wrath is demonstrated through a series of judgments. Judgments that are introduced in heaven and that are executed on the earth. The seal judgments and the trumpet judgments so far in our study. So now we come to Revelation 10. And we find ourselves between the sounding of the sixth and the seventh trumpets. So in chapter 9, verse 13, we read that the sixth angel blew his trumpet. And then in chapter 11, verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. But we really haven't moved beyond the sixth trumpet at this point. What we've already seen is that trumpets 5, 6, and 7 are known as woes. The end of chapter 8, the eagle said in flying through the sky, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow, the blast of the fifth, sixth, and seventh 
trumpets. We learned in chapter 9 last week that the fifth trumpet blew, and the earth dwellers were tormented by locust-like demonic hordes, verses 5 and verse 10. And then we read following this in verse 12. The first woe has passed, one down. Two woes are still to come. And then there's the sixth trumpet. And the third of the earth is killed by horrific demonic hordes. But the conclusion statement about the woes doesn't come right after that. It comes in Revelation 11.14. 11.14 says, the second woe has passed. Behold, the third is soon to come. So what we have in Revelation 10 is another interlude. Another interlude in the story. It's still within the sequence of the trumpet judgments. But why is there a break in the sequence of the judgments? We need to consider that. This is a drama that is unfolding. This is a story of Christ coming to conquer and reclaim the earth. And at times when that story is told, this true story, there needs to be clarification. There needs to be explanation. There needs to be refocusing. So that's what we found in chapter 7. Chapter 7, we needed to know that the servants of God will be safe. They'll be sealed. And then they go back to the story. And here in chapter 10, we are again refocusing ourselves. What is here is to help us keep up with the storyline that Christ is initiating conflict with the world in order to reclaim it for himself. As we've been going through this, we've seen that the scope of this drama has been widening. We've seen God and Christ exalted in heaven. Then we've seen judgment falling upon the earth. But then in chapter 9, we read of the abyss. So the scope of the set is widening. Heaven, earth, the abyss. And the situation on earth is worsening, as demonstrated by the last words of chapter 9. Those on earth refuse to repent. And when it comes to Revelation 10, the plot is going to escalate further with the sight of a mighty angel. Let's read about it in Revelation 10.1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. And this mighty angel had a divine appearance. Let's read about it in verse 1. He was wrapped with a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and with his face, and his face was like the sun. His legs like pillars of fire. You ever met someone like that before? Mm-hmm. We look at this description, and it is a description of a divine appearance because clouds are often associated with deity. Revelation 1.7, it says that Christ will come with the clouds. The Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 was approached by the Son of Man with the clouds. Christ will come in the clouds. Clouds are a signal of deity. goes on to say the rainbow that wraps him. And the rainbow is part of John's description of God in Revelation 4.3. The rainbow is also Ezekiel's sight of the appearance of God in Ezekiel 1.28. 
And then the description of the face and the legs, those are similar descriptions to what we already saw in Revelation 1 when we saw Christ Jesus glorified. Because Christ Jesus is no longer simply a babe in a manger. He's not a weak one who's crucified. He is the exalted Lord in all of His glory. That's what we saw in chapter 1. So we come to this passage and we see this kind of description and it is striking and it magnifies who this being is. And some people think he's Jesus Christ. Because who else can be described like this? But the text states that this is another mighty angel. Another, that is to say, one of the same kind as the others. We've already seen a mighty angel who spoke in Revelation 5.2. We'll see one speak again in Revelation 18.21. So is this Christ or is this a mighty angel? Well, the identity is definitely something that's debated, but perhaps the identity isn't the focus of the text. The text is going to move from what he looked like, his appearance, to what he possessed. Verse 2, it says, he had a little scroll open in his hand. So the mighty angel held an opened scroll. This passage doesn't say anything else about it, but there's more said about it later on in this chapter, which we'll consider next week. He's a mighty angel with a divine appearance and with an opened scroll. And from that, we consider his position. Revelation 10.2, halfway through, it says, And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And his stance is not an accident. He positioned himself there intentionally. I like what the NIV says. He planted his feet there. It was on purpose. He was doing so to claim his territory, both land and sea, signifying all the earth. Now, this image, it brings us all the way back to Abraham because God told Abraham to walk through the promised land. Why? Because it was God's gift to him. And that promise is echoed in what is said to Moses and what is said to Joshua. Deuteronomy eleven twenty four. it says this, Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. So what we find here is a claim to territory. This one has moved from heaven to earth and is standing on the land and sea, and this is escalating the drama of the plot. You all remember one of the most epic stories that is ever told and one of the most popularly known stories in the Bible from 1 Samuel 17. In 1 Samuel 17, we find the armies of the Philistines and the armies of the Israelites on opposite sides of the Valley of Elah. On the one side was the Philistine champion, Goliath. On the other side stood young David. That's a standoff. Well, one day in the future, there will be a far greater standoff because this mighty angel will stand on land and sea, as said in Revelation 10. I want you to skip forward to see the other one who stands. Revelation 12, verse 17, the very end of the chapter. Revelation 12, 17 says this, And he, that's referring to the dragon, referring to Satan, 
and he stood on the sea. What a drama. The drama here is escalating, and it means that there's been a claim to dominion. This angel is positioning himself, claiming dominion for the earth. And this is an important point because it's the point that's repeated in the passage. We see in chapter 10, verse 2, that it refers to this, but you move down to the next section, chapter 10, verse 5, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, down in verse 8. The voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll, open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. The point is clear through repetition. This is a claim that is being made. John saw a mighty angel state claim to the earth. Either this is Christ himself or this is an angel on his behalf doing so. This is a mighty move from heaven. It's a bold move. What we find next in chapter 10 may baffle us, though. Let's read verse 3. And he called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. A lion can roar and be heard five miles away. This is a mighty sound, like the mighty angel who spoke in chapter 5. He called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. So the seventh thunder spoke when the mighty angel shouted. Now, what are these thunders? It would seem safe to say that they must be a series of judgments. We've had seven seals. We've had seven trumpets. Now seven thunders, it would seem. But the text doesn't tell us. And we would have known except for what happens next. Look at verse 4. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. That's what John was told to do in chapter 1. Christ said to him, what you see, what you hear, write it down. I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. So John heard, but didn't write what the seven thunders spoke. That is to say, these seven thunders didn't thunder. They spoke clearly, so clearly that John understood what they said and was about to write it down. But a voice from heaven, probably Christ, perhaps the Father's, a voice from heaven chose to keep this word from the record that we have. And John sealed up what the thunders had said. That's the second thing that we see here. This shows us that God chooses to conceal some things from us. God has made many things known to us. We have his word. But God does not have a policy of full transparency. We live in a day of transparency, and that may strike us, but God is God. We're not, and God is under no obligation to tell us everything. Deuteronomy 29.29 tells us the principle, the secret things belong to God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. And the Scriptures are plain when it talks about all the things that are revealed. They're all revealed of God, inspired by God, and they're profitable for us. 2 Timothy 3.16 And we can be assured that what God has given us is all we need for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1. And we don't need to know everything in order to be eternally blessed. Remember the theme verses of the Gospel of John? John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. This is how 
John summarizes what he's written in that gospel. John, the same writer as the writer here in Revelation. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. You say, well, that's discouraging. It ought not be. Because what is written is enough. The Bible says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So even though we don't know what the seven thunders said, we can know that God has a plan, that he is going to execute his plan, and we don't need to worry about it. When it comes to his plan, he will bring his kingdom, and it will be soon. So we move to the third and final point this morning, verses 5 and 7. John heard the mighty angel time stamp the coming kingdom. Look at verse 5. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him. He swore by God because God is the greatest being there is. If this is Christ, he can swear by himself because he is the greatest being. He swore by him who lives forever and ever. God is the eternal God. He was never created. He always existed. Who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. That is to say, he is the creator God. He is the eternal God. He is the creator God. And what did he swear? That there would be no more delay. There won't be any more delay, verses 5 and 6 show us. And this is not trying to signal to us the end of time. There's a song that's in the hymn book, When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. The clock won't tick. But this is not a reference to all the clocks stopping. How do we know that? Look at the next verse. In verse 6 it says, There would be no more delay. Verse 7, But in the days, that is a period of time. So time's not done. In the days, it says, of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel. That is to show us this. When the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, it will not be a momentary blast. It will be a period of time. In the days. In fact, as we go through these next chapters of Revelation, we're told exactly how many months and how many days. The seventh trumpet will be it in those days. It encompasses the seven bold judgments that are given to us in Revelation 16. What is unique about these judgments to come is that they're different from the judgments that have come before. The judgments of the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments so far have been a quarter or a third. We get to the bold judgments, and there's no more partial judgment. It's full. So the angel is declaring there's going to be no delay for something very specific to come. Look at verse 7. And in that day, in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. 
So John is trying to say here that the angels spoke and the mystery of God will be fulfilled in the days of the seventh trumpet. And this mystery is nothing new because it is a mystery that has been spoken by the prophets of old. They've proclaimed the good news for hundreds of years, but this mystery is going to be unfolded in the future because the seventh trumpet judgment is in the future. We've been running through this book, and every single time we start running into these numbers like seven seals, there's actually seven seals, and they happen. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And it says seven trumpets, and they happen. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They say there are three woes, and they happen. One, two, three. We're at the point where the sixth has been sounded, but not yet the seventh. In the future, it will be sounded. The mystery of God will be fulfilled. It will be completed. What's the mystery of God? Well, the Bible talks about mystery, and when it does, it talks about divinely revealed truth. A mystery is something in Scripture that was an unanswered situation. There was something that was not known for a time, but in time it has been revealed by God. You say, well, what is, what is God going to do? What's the great mystery? We can do the same thing you do in other books that you read. If you want to know what happens in the story, go, to, go further ahead in the story. So let's do that. Let's jump ahead. Where are we going to jump to? exactly what the angel said in the days of the seventh seal. So let's go to the seventh seal. Turn to Revelation eleven fifteen. Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You see, what will delay no longer is the establishment of God's kingdom on the earth. That is God's plan. It was spoken by his prophets, and Jesus Christ is going to bring it to pass. And what we have following 11.15 is a description of that. Look at verse 16. Then the 24 elders who sat on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying this, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged. That's a reference to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the kings of the earth take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed? That is a summary of all the peoples of the earth, that they are galvanized against the Messiah. What was the response? But your wrath came. That's a summary of the conflict that Christ is initiating in the earth. His wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying the destroyers of the earth. You see, that's what soon must take place. This book began by telling us that there are things that must soon take place. And this mighty angel is declaring that there will be no more delay. There will be no more time. In these days, in the days of the seventh trumpet, it will happen. It will be fulfilled. It's like saying the timer is set, it started, and there's nothing that can stop it. 
And for some reason, all that I can think of is what we find in the movies with the bomb. The timer's set, it's clicked, and you can't stop it. So this angel is coming and saying, the time to the end has started, and it's going. There'll be no more delay. Not to say there won't be any time there, but it is coming to an end. And I'd like to close by wrapping this up with two points. One in 2 Peter 3 and then one we find in Revelation 2. So I encourage you for just the moment then to turn back in your Bibles to 2 Peter 3. It tells us about the last days. 2 Peter 3.3, it says this, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Notice what they say. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? One of the chief things that is taught in the Christian church is not only that Christ came and died for our sins and rose for our justification according to our scriptures, but that Christ is coming again. But scoffers will say, where is the promise? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of the creation. They're saying it. I don't see it. They doubt. Peter goes on to say they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed. They deny the creator God, the same one that the mighty angels swore by. They deny him. Verse 7, by that same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The day is coming. It is promised. So why is there a delay? The reason for the delay is given for us in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord could have chosen to exact judgment years ago, thousands of years ago. But what God has been doing for all these years is delaying. He has suffered long the sin of mankind. Why? Because he wants people to repent of their sin. At this point, God is not in a posture towards us that he is ready to come and get us. He wants us to humble ourselves before him. And that brings us to Revelation 2, which I think is a primary way we ought to consider this passage. It's in the application section of the book of Revelation, and it's a cross-reference in the very book that we're studying. And it goes along, actually, with 2 Peter 3. In the letter in Revelation 2 to the church of Thyatira, Jesus Christ addressed the church's tolerance of the sin of the woman Jezebel. You remember she was the one who was given to idolatry and immorality. And here we have another reference to time, but opposite what we find in chapter 10. In Revelation 10, it says time is no more, no more time, no more delay. Look at Revelation 2.21. I, Christ speaking, I gave her time. Why? To repent. She refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. 
So at the end of Revelation 9, the people on earth refuse to repent. They refuse to turn from sin to God. And then in Revelation 10, the mighty angel declares there will be no more time of delay. Time is given, and there is now no more. The kingdom will be established. Christ will rule. Christ will judge. And here's the point. In the day of rewards, there will be no more time for repentance. You and I don't know when we're going to leave this life. It could be today. But we will be ushered to the presence of the Lord, and we may be sure, as it says in chapter 2, verse 23, that Christ will give to each according to his works. That is to say, nothing is going to be hidden from him. No sin is going to be overlooked by him. He will not lower the bar for anyone. So what this is, is a call to repent. Because one day there will be no more time to repent. That is the woeful, woeful oath that is taken in Revelation 10, given that those on earth have refused to repent in Revelation 9. We began this morning by talking about renters. Renters who won't pay their rent. And one day they'll be sent an eviction notice telling them that they have to get out. One day Christ will come and remove all who won't give him the glory he deserves. He's going to reclaim the earth, signaled by the mighty angel who took his stance on land and sea. And there will be no more delay as was sworn by this mighty angel. But this event is told to us so that we'll humble ourselves before the Lord now. It's a good thing to know what will be so we know what we should do today. Father, we pray today that you will bring about your kingdom. We do want you to rule and reign, partly because living in a sin-cursed world is very frustrating. We are in the midst of an election year, and it seems that things always get particularly frustrating at this time. But what we find in your word is that instead of looking at all the sin around us, we need to focus on ourselves and consider if we are ready for the day of rewards, because on the day of rewards, there will be no more time for repentance. And may we truly have repented of our sin unto salvation. And may we truly be those who repent of our sin to have regular and continual sweet fellowship with you. May we not think that the people of God are greater and better than the people of the earth. We indeed are not. The people of God have never been more outstanding, even as God chose Israel, not because they were great, or because they were good, because God is merciful. Even so, Lord, you have chosen us, not because we are great and good, but because you are merciful to sinners. And Father, we pray that you would allow us to each examine our hearts, knowing that the one who confesses and forsakes his sin will have mercy. And Father, we praise you for being a God of mercy. We praise you for the time in our life that we can remember you showed us mercy. And we are thankful for those times in our life from day to day that we call upon you 
and you are merciful to us, and you forgive us of our sin and restore us to fellowship. We praise you for that. We praise you that that will make us fit for your kingdom come. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.